Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number six of The Think Tank. It is my pleasure to introduce today's special guest, Dan Bensonov, the Sustainability Coordinator of Campus Gardens at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Dan is the head of the UMass Permaculture Initiative and has spearheaded the movement towards decriminalizing plant medicines in the city of Northampton. This episode is full of great conversation about the environment, food, psychedelics, and many more fascinating topics. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's get into it. Okay. All right, so what's up, Dan? How are you doing today on this fine, sunny afternoon? You know, Adam, I'm doing pretty well. It's summertime. It's warm outside. The sun is shining. What's to complain about? Yeah, it's beautiful. And we're in the new, this new dining hall with perfect podcasting space. That's right. So I'm going to take my shoes off sure. to get more comfortable. I don't really like wearing these boots all the time. Um, Unbonded yourself. Unbind ourselves from our mortal coil of boots. Where'd you get your boots? How long did they last Oh, year? I don't know. I've had them for like seven or eight years. Whoa. Have they traveled uh, with you anywhere cool? Uh, yeah. I've taken them to Utah and Utah. to Japan. Whoa. They've been to at least a couple continents by now. Yeah, international boots. So this is the first pair of boots I've owned that I actually know how to take care of properly, and uh, it's been a real joy to be with these boots. I oil them twice a year. You oil your boots. I oil, yeah. So if you if you oil your boots, boots can last about a lifetime if they're well built, but only if the leather is well hydrated. Oh. So if you oil them, you'll get a lot more years out of them. Cool. I got my boots in an Elopine dumpster. So nice. I got to learn how to care for them. Oil them, huh? Yep, just but the it, leather parts. But it has yeah. to be real, real, it's, real leather. It's like a. It's actually like a waxy. It's kind of more like a beeswax than an oil, oh, really. Cool. All right. Well, so what did we? What have we done today? We worked. Where were we working? We okay. were at Franklin Permaculture Garden, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we planted some Napa cabbage today. Mm-hmm. We were also doing some design work for a garden expansion of that garden. Um, and uh, yeah, we did a little bit of harvesting as well this morning. Fantastic. The Franklin Permaculture Garden. For, for those who don't know, what, what is permaculture? People ask me, I say, I work in this permaculture garden. And they're like, What's, what is that? I don't, I don't sure. know what permaculture is. Yeah, I mean, I get that question a lot as well. And I guess I'll preface that by saying that there's as many definitions of permaculture as there are practitioners of permaculture, I think. Mm. Uh, it's a very open source concept. It's, it's constantly evolving. It's, um, and that's partly what's so interesting to me about it. Um, but, I mean, loosely, uh, I would define it as um, a system, a, a design system that attempts to meet human needs while also increasing ecological health and diversity. Mm. Um, okay. So that's that's one take on it. It's obviously very broad, but what the the project of permaculture is to comp- create a community of, of of humans, a society that is truly sustainable, not in the sustainable sense that we talk about, uh, where we you know uh, um, use less plastic, let's say, but actually a complete redesign of the ways in which we live, work play and mm. uh, function together as a group interesting so in on the point of like sustainability it's not just like 
because sustainability kind of becomes this buzzword, and you know, every corporation in the world's like, oh, we're sustainably yeah. like shipping things across the world. Is this <laughs> kind of mean like the way we actually live on the planet is meant to be like long term and like regenerative what? almost in a sense? Yeah, well, I certainly don't know what, what the human fate will be, whether it's meant to be long term or not. Yeah. Thus far, it looks like not. Right. <laughs> um, we're on a, a pretty fast-paced suicide mission mm. at present moment. Um, so, yeah, w- what does it take to actually change that? Well, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, it's regenerative in the sense. So, sustainable is a, a buzzword that's to me lost its meaning mm. more or less. So, what we're really talking about is a culture that is really rooted in place mm. and that understands the limits of growth and has an economy based on those limits. Um, so to me, the, the primary models that we look at, if we really want to look at sustainable economies, sustainable societies, we have to look at indigenous societies, people mm-hmm. who have existed in community for thousands of years. Unfortunately, we don't have too many examples of civilizations able mm-hmm. to do that. Um, a long-lived civilization, such as Rome, we're talking about perhaps, you know, at most a millennium, if not less, uh, which is really no time at all in, in, the, in the span of um, larger evolutionary mm. cycles or geological cycles. So um, what does it look like for civilization to actually be uh, sustainable? We don't know yet, but we know where we need to start and we know we have a lot of, we know where we need to move from here. Yeah. So, huh. so okay, on that theme of like getting started where, where we're going, how did you first get into permaculture how did you get into these well-oiled boots like <laughs> what journey did you go through to get to this point and realize like this is the mission that we need to yeah to go on? well it's been a long journey i definitely um there's been a lot of great teachers along the way that have really helped mm-hmm. me find this place but um so i guess to go back you know when i was in college i was uh uh in many ways kind of very abstracted, lost in my own thoughts, mm. um, trying to figure out my place in the universe. I didn't really have what I would consider a mission. I didn't really have a, a social justice lens mm. in which I looked through the world. I didn't know what I wanted from myself, from anyone else. Um, but I, again, through, the, through working really with mentors and kind of accidentally finding uh, the world of... Um, Farming and I would say more broadly kind of DIY culture Mm. really so because it's not just about growing food It's about uh, really willing to take responsibility for our own lives to Make sure that everything we utilize is cared for to make sure that it is properly Recycled by which I don't mean putting into a blue bin, but I mean actually seeing the entire life cycle through uh, by making building as much as we can and creating kinship ties mm. while doing it, right? So, because we can't, none of us can do any of this alone, right? right. We need others. Um, so that kind of, broadly speaking, that's kind of the world I ended up falling into. Um, first, through a couple teachers in college, um, one of whom uh, he was uh, an environmental literature teacher, mm. uh, but he made us do things like find a sit spot for the course of a semester mm. um, and sit still and observe what was happening around us and really actually building connection to a place. Um, 
because he, he really believed, and I came to really you know, understand later on the importance of this, that we can't just care for the globe as a whole. We need to build connections to particular places, to particular people, um, to a, a place in time. Um, so that was really transformational for me to actually get into the details of what is life, what is this place, um, what, am, what are these cycles I'm a part of. Um, and the other teacher who was really influential for me at that point was uh, uh, actually a philosophy teacher who primarily focused on Taoism and Buddhism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I really wanted to know how do I actually take these philosophies that I was so interested in and put them into practice? Uh, and so that question really brought me into connection with this world of what is right livelihood? And so I, I thought, you know what, growing food in a way that doesn't poison the planet and that actually feeds communities of people um, seems to me like a good place to start. Mm -hmm. And I found not only that that um, philosophically worked, but tan tangibly, it was really rewarding work. Mm -hmm. I had never done anything in my life before that point that felt tangibly rewarding in that same way of knowing that I can sleep well today because I actually helped someone mm. or I, I, you know, I, I did something that was truly useful. Um, so after college, I ended up going to Israel for a while, um, did a six month internship um, on this uh, eco village where it was a you know, really fully, fully immersed experience where it wasn't just about growing our own food. It was about harnessing our own energy, cycling mm. water and really being cognizant of everything we utilize, um, everything that we put in our bodies, everything that we use to build the buildings we make. Um, everything was really seen through the lens of what impact is it making um, be, before it comes to us, after we leave it. Uh, and so that way of thinking really seeped into, my, into me, and that was also where I was introduced to permaculture. Um, and so I carried that back with me when I came back to the States mm. and have um, employed it in a lot of different ways since then. Mm. Yeah, I know you worked with the Boston Food Forest Coalition, right? right? Could yeah. you go a little bit into like, how that came about? And sure, yeah. There? Um, yeah, so I, when I got back from Israel, this is around 2009 or so, found myself living in Boston where my, where my folks were, um, and uh, I was working on a, a little organic farm just outside of the city, um, and was really, you know, I was kind of hungry for community. I didn't really know many people. Um, so I ended up uh, befriending a couple people uh, on the same block as me. Um, Interestingly enough, they, you know, I saw them walking down the street carrying bundles of garlic one day, and I was like, ah, these seem like good people. So we struck up a conversation, and um, one of the things they mentioned in that very first conversation where we talked was uh, a vacant lot that was uh, just up the street from us um, that had, um, hadn't had been utilized in about 30 years or so. There had once been a house there and burned down. Uh, it was kind of a, at the time, this, this was a really marginal neighborhood. There wasn't a lot of development or investment happening. Um, and so, you know, they sort of proposed kind of jokingly, like, well, why don't we actually do something about it? Why don't we try to make use of it in some way? So the first thing we did was just kind of organized a, a work day. Uh, we didn't really know what we were going to get ourselves into, but um, we just wanted to, first of all, get rid of a lot of the trash there at first. And so they had been utilized as more or less a trash dump but, mm -hmm. uh, over the last few, you know, decade or so. So we hauled out multiple TVs. We hauled out half of an automobile that had been stashed there for some reason. Um, and just really started to care for it. And that sort of almost inevitably led to, well, now that it's cleaner, we should probably grow something here, mm -hmm. right? Um, because it just 
almost naturally happened. We didn't even really have to talk about it very much. It just seemed like that was what you do if you really care about a place. So uh, again, th this was just mostly neighbors around. It was kind of, it's a very mixed neighborhood. Um, a lot of uh, Dominican, Puerto Rican uh, residents um, and some you know folks like myself who've uh, moved there more recently. And uh, we started working on it on the weekends and started to build this um, kind of uh, a perennial based system. So very much kind of in the, uh, in the spirit of permaculture, something that would be lower maintenance, something that was not only going to be growing food, but it was also going to be beneficial to the wider ecosystem, mm. bringing in pollinators, wildlife, uh, et cetera, sequestering carbon, shade, all those things we need to have really good environments in cities. This was also, I should mention, an area that didn't have a lot of city parks. Mm. So it really felt like we needed that common green space. Um, and so that was, it was a really big focal point for the community for the first three or four years, especially. We were really trying to utilize a different model. There were some community gardens already there, but they were all in the same way that we split up our land. They were split up into individual mm. plots. You owned your plot for that year and you may or may not have had any interaction with anyone else there. This was a very different model. We were growing everything together. The harvest was split up with whoever went to the work days. Um, and it was open to anyone anytime. Um, so basically, you know, we were so, I don't know, it, it, we got so much good feedback from that project um, that it just seemed like we should continue. So we started to actually con connect with other neighbors who said, hey, we have a, a vacant lot. I mean, can you guys help us do something kind of like this? Um, so that, sort, that eventually came to be what's now the Boston Food Forest Coalition, mm -hmm. which is really this like uh, widely dispersed network of food forests across the city of Boston that are maintained by the neighbors within that mm -hmm. you know, immediate locality. Um, and what the Food Forest Coalition now does uh, is really serve as kind of a hub for training, for administration, but they're not necessarily doing a lot of the actual on the ground work. Right. That's being done by the people who are living there. All right, so they're kind of providing this like, you help set up this framework right. to... They have the model, they can help you make it happen. <coughs> they have... The blueprints. The blueprints, yeah. they have insurance, okay. they have connections with the city. So all of that sort of, that, that's really the hard work mm. to do in transforming spaces. Most people, what they really want to do is come out and they want to garden. They want right. to be with people. Um, so we've kind of, you know, I, I'm not no longer that involved with them, but um, they're going strong and, you know, they're able to really create that framework for, mm. for people to use. So it really seems like this isn't just, you know, they're not just ideas and they're not just actions. It's all based off like community and like that time and place and the here and now and the people that are present. And I think, I think it's very interesting because you know, you look at all these like, oh, we need to have this agricultural practice and this, and there's this whole laundry list of what we need to do, but it's not based in the context of the people and like the communities that it affects. And I think it's really interesting how permaculture acknowledges like, it's holistic. It acknowledges that there's not just like a physical reality here. There's not just a mental reality. There's like a whole, there's many dimensions that we have to do the work on, um, including it sounds like, you know, philosophical, ethical, spiritual dimensions. and. I'm wondering if your spiritual or your worldview in any way has shifted because of the work you've done with permaculture, any of the experiences you've had, and how that may differ than what you had before or the ideas you held about the world. 
before? Wow, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it's hard for me to separate even my spiritual life from my uh, quote-unquote work life, mm-hmm. which is really also my personal life. It's all so intermixed that there is no clear boundaries in some ways. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're all outgrowths of each other in the sense that, I mean, to me, when we talk about permaculture, what we're really talking about is care and attention. Mm. And a, a, a human-scaled model or economy of the world, you know. Um, so many of the systems that we are a part of are so beyond us at this point that we feel um, we, we, we feel powerless for one thing. So to me, this is about regaining our power mm-hmm. and uh, also rethinking impact. Um, so, I mean, I'll get to your question in a sec, but um, one of the big things that's shifted for me, at least in terms of my kind of ecological thinking or my, my thinking about where we as humans fit into the wider ecological <coughs> web, I used to think it was all about not doing things, mm-hmm. right? We talk about leave no trace. Um, and that, I mean, certainly we do a lot of things that are harmful. That is a big part of it. But we can also be agents of positive disturbance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we talk about all of these kind of forms, these models, we're, what we're really talking about is playing with alternative economies, alternative communities. Um, and we don't necessarily, I don't always know what's going to stick. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what feels right. Um, it's really hard necessarily, I mean, the longevity of these things, is, we can debate that at some point if you're interested. Yeah. But um, I, I think that, you know, to me, I really thrive on human scaled systems where I feel that I have voice Mm. uh, and I feel that others are heard and that their actions matter. So what I'm trying to do is scale whatever we're talking about, whether it's agricultural systems um, or uh, wider economic systems, whatever it might be, governmental systems, um, so that we have that human scale Mm -hmm. in mind. So that individuals, individual communities actually matter in that. But to, yeah, to get back to your kind of spiritual component, yeah, I mean, so so much of this is also wrapped up in my study and personal experience with communities that are more rooted in place mm-hmm. and seeing what spiritual life looks like for them. Um, also, to some extent, influenced by my own um, journey into Judaism, although that has kind of has had its ebbs and flows over time. Um, but when I study these, um, these various uh, life ways, um, uh, and when I say indigenous, I don't necessarily just mean in America. I mean anywhere around the world where people have been living for a long time within, within their bounds, roughly put, right? Um, so one thing that you notice as a pattern is that they all have a deep ritual as part mm. of their life. Um, ritual as a way of um, noticing really important events, both for individuals as well as for the community as a whole. Mm-hmm. Ritual as a way of connecting with ancestors, which is also to say connecting with the place where that they live. Right. Because ancestors are there in that place. They are not separated. Ancestors also in the sense of actually connecting with water, with the earth itself, with the sun, with the stars, all of those things that actually root you to a sense of belonging, um, all of that is done really through rituals and through mythology, through stories. Mm. So a big part of it for me has been finding those stories and those rituals that work in our modern day context for me and, you know, because 
Uh, a lot of them, you, you can't translate them one-to-one, -one, right? We live in a different time. I live in a different culture. I, I don't want to just take a, a ritual from another culture and do that. Yeah. That doesn't seem authentic to me. But um, I think you can be inspired by the forms that they take because, again, these they've been honed through millennia of of, of practice. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's a really big inspiration for me, and that's a really, I think, important part of the work. I, I don't think that... Uh, permaculture or re regeneration, regenerative economies or agriculture, none of these can happen in isolation right. from a, uh, a newly understood sense of spirituality. And to me, that spirituality ha it has to be distinct from, I guess, the, I don't know, I, I don't want to knock the Ju Judeo-Christian or monotheistic systems too much, but to me, they're also abstracted mm. from the actual places that we are, the people that we are, the life, the life that we live in some ways. Uh, you can practice uh, Christianity, Islam, Judaism just as well in New York as you can in Jerusalem, which is, which is great and fine in some ways. But it, it's, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, they, they don't really take into account the, some of the particularities right. of, of our culture. And <laughs> a lot of, in some sense, because, you know, for example, in Judaism, we're talking about um, a a, a culture that's been in exile, you know, for right. uh, millennia. So, yeah, for millennia. In Christianity or Islam, we're talking about cultures that developed uh, in large part due to like proselytization. Yeah. Right? Um, so inevitably, they're not going to be rooted to the land, and and they have their own forms of ritual, which I think that there's a lot to learn there too. Um, but I'm really drawn to um, land-based spirituality land -based. systems. Mm. Yeah, ones that really like care about more the mm. i don't know the see uh you know it, i don't necessarily um have direct experience of for example seeing spirit in you know a stone or a mm. mountain but I, I i can i really resonate with that understanding of places mm. that i actually that they are imbued with life yeah. and meaning that it's like imminent it's yes. like here yes. we don't have to you can look to the stars, but you can also look yeah, here because right. the stars are here. Yeah, God is not, I mean, in the sort of the mythology of uh, Judeo-Christian Islam, mm -hmm. God is above. God is not here on earth, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I want to kind of move past that into actually seeing God or spirit or whatever you want to call it in all things. Right. Which is like the a real true idea of monotheism is like one God is like, everything yes. is enveloped right. within that including yeah. all of our actions and if we you know in the judeo-christian tradition we are manifestations of and creating the image of god so how am i going to be a, a change maker in my own little way yeah right um, right yeah and then also i mean you know getting into some of the mythologies there some of them are almost inevitably bringing this kind of what what um Charles Eisenstein, this writer, mm. I admire, he, he talks about the story of separation mm -hmm. being kind of the primary myth of our time. Um, and, I, you know, I think that you really can't get into Judeo-Christian traditions without, for example, looking at Genesis and, uh, and you know, the, garden, the story of the Garden of Eden, which is kind of inevitably a story of, the sto of separation right. in some ways, right? Um, and so, yeah, how do we move from that, a story of separation to... A story of interconnectedness is kind of the, the bigger overarching mm -hmm. question of spirituality. Yeah. I think these these major mythologies even, like, they influence our lives so much, even 
even though many people identify secular or not like a practicing part of the religion, like our whole society is based off of this story that like this relation to nature or even with like economic systems, you know, in capitalism, the story goes, if you work hard, you'll rise through the ranks. Therefore, everyone who got there deserves it because they worked hard to get there. And that's, there's so many implicit assumptions in the stories that we're not even aware of most of the time that drive our thinking. And then when we see other cultures that have completely different ways of knowing, they're just like, what are you talking about? But we take it as like, as assumed to be true. Right. Even if we don't know, we kind of like bought in when we were born. That's right. It's like the current of our society. And it seems like so much of the work we have to do comes from like changing the current. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I don't have to tell you, it's really hard work because how do you create um, these alternative currents in a system that's, that first of all, you were born, I guess, as you're saying, you were born into. So we have all these assumptions, which are extremely hard to really rid ourselves from. But more importantly, I mean, we still have to put food on the table. Right. We still have to uh, potentially save money for retirement. We still have to take care of kids. All these things, you know, take care of elders. Like all these things that require some participation in the economic reality of today. Right. Um, and it also brings into questions like, you know, questions of, of privilege because not everyone can necessarily go against the current, right. if you can will. Sit and right. Think. Most people are, are trying to not drown in the current. Right. Right. That's fair. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's an, a part where a lot of social movements may falter. And I myself have been guilty of this is you see this issue and you're like, this is the most important issue. But, you know, someone who's hungry or doesn't have the time to sit and read about all these issues in the world because they have to work all their life. They're very they are very intimately aware of the system's not working. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, with privileges, you have to like kind of use your leverage. It's like, OK, am I going to be this? How do I want to have my right livelihood, I guess, in the words you put? It's like, am I going to use what I have to, like, create the system that maybe empowers people more? Or do you just go with the flow of it? Because it's definitely easier to not fight the current, to just go with it. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, and that's where I think also the study of um, all a variety of social justice movements in our history it comes into play. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, how does actual change really happen? Like, what's been really successful? Mm-hmm. And, you know, plenty of them have been not, not very successful, right? So I, I think that studying some of those histories can help inform mm-hmm. our current generation uh, of, of activists or of people who are looking to create um, alternative uh, communities or economies or whatever you mm-hmm. have it, or at least live a life that's <coughs> more in line with their values. Right. Yeah. Is there any particular, like leaders or teachers or movements that have like inspired you personally to do the work that you do? Oh, uh, many, um, leaders, teachers, or movements. Mm. There's a lot. I mean, I could give you some for all of those. So uh, where do you want to start? Well, dealer's choice, dealer's whatever choice. is most okay. resonant with you right now. Sure. Um, yeah, well, let's see. I, I mean, one, the first thing that came to my mind actually is is not one that I've really even studied all that deeply, but I just I was reading about it in the last few weeks. Um, I think you know when I think about my life, and uh, I was born in 1986. Full disclosure, um, one of the biggest, I guess, social sh- shifts in terms of values, I would say, has been around um, LGBTQ mm. um, issues. It's just it's so incredibly palpable. Um, uh, there's other issues I could say there's definitely been movement on, but 
none that I can really think of that were quite as much as happened in my mm-hmm. lifetime. Um, and so I've been kind of wondering, like, how did they, or how did they, like, how did we as a yeah. society manage to shift in the course of 20, 30 years? And, and not to say, like, there was a lot of work done before that, right? right? I mean, we're going back to the 60s, 70s, maybe, you know, you can go back as far as you want. Um, but within my lifetime, at least, um, I've seen a sea change. Mm. So that's uh, something I've been really looking into. Um, and so I've been studying a little bit of, for example, Rise Up as being one organization uh, that came about in the 80s. And I don't know how much detail we're going to get, but basically it came about as a result of the AIDS epidemic. Mm. And they were able to make huge, huge changes in not just laws, but in norms um, in a very, very short period of time. And one of the things that was so important for them was that, first of all, they, their lives were literally on the line. Mm. They were literally on the line. Uh, and so how do we translate something like that to, for example, the ecological justice movement um, or to um, other social justice movements? Um, it, you know, it, it's hard to kind of, I think, maintain that, but that, that's partly why they were successful. They were able to disrupt systems because they put their bodies on the line mm-hmm. because their bodies were literally on the yeah. line. Um, so I think about that a lot and I think about how do we actually, you know, help people to really awaken to the fact that in this case, our lives are in some sense truly on the line too. It may not be our generation. It will be for the, for young people. I, I think it is for my generation already, but um, it certainly it will be a, con- a pressing concern. But how do we actually get that um, visceral reaction out of, out of people where we realize, okay, wait a second, like we are causing this and we can do something about this if we put our bodies on the line. And I, I mean, realistically, my cynical part of me thinks, well, things might have to get a lot worse before they mm. get better, um, as happened with the, you know, the AIDS epidemic, for example. So I, I hope that's not true. But I think that the more that we can connect to particular places and to the particular resources that we use, um, the more we realize how much is on the line for mm. us. Um, and the more they realize we have agency there. So that's where I think growing food, for example, comes into play. Um, Growing, you know, food, of course, is itself like a really, really rewarding work. um, And there's a lot of direct ecological benefit from growing food for yourself. But mostly to me, it is almost, it's a great entryway into Mm. the bigger work. Because when you start to grow food for yourself, you start to question all of the other resources that you're working with, all of the other ways in which you interact with the landscape, mm. all these other bigger questions of life and death and legacy come into play all of a sudden. Yeah. So that's why where I see it as kind of a really important entryway. Yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting because when I think about, you know, my own personal journey and so many of the people I know, you know, like starting just even one plan was like changed their lives, you know, it's a seed metaphorically, but if you want to think of a being that's so attached to a time and a place, it's a, it's a plant because they're mm-hmm. literally rooted in the ground. And I think engaging with a being like that and realizing like, oh, that's how like this, that way of life exists. And you realize, oh, I can do more and more. And you get into that. That really gets the, um, what's the term that, um, uh, it's like iterative, you know, mm-hmm. you plant one season. And then with the seasons, you notice over and over and over. and. I think that's, you know, that goes back to, you mentioned Taoism and Buddhism, like that goes back to mindfulness, is seeing the changes occur and being aware of it 
Because you can't just like throw a bunch of seeds in the ground and pff, there it is. You really have right. to like tend to it and care for it. Yeah. And then you realize, oh, that just spills over into so many other forms. Yeah. And, like growing plants and I know I feel like in our day and age we see food as like static. You know, this hamburger has always been a hamburger. And maybe, you know, I know that there's, like, a farm somewhere, but there's, like, that cognitive dissonance yes. between, like, living being and the food we eat, even though they're all connected. So I feel like the educational work that, you know, you do and that we're doing here, like, bridges that that gap of, right. like, understanding and practice. So people really see that. Um, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And cognitive dissonance is... Cognitive dissonance, I'm sorry, is such an important term in this con context, um, especially when I think about something like climate change, where, I mean, everyone's aware of it. Not everyone believes it yeah. necessarily, but even among, let's say, first of all, just on that note, um, believing in climate change doesn't necessarily, for example, change the way you live your life. Right. And so what does that say? You know, the fact that if someone actually truly fully believes and understands what climate change entails, and yet they continue to live the exact same way. What does that mean? I mean, in some sense, maybe it means that they feel like it's not up to them to make mm -hmm. any changes. And to some extent, I, I, I understand that perspective. I mean, we need changes that are beyond individual decisions. But I think it also comes back to this idea of cognitive dissonance, that intellectually, <coughs> we can understand something without actually understanding its true ramifications and living with that information. Yeah. And I think that's where intellectuality more generally fails oftentimes. Mm -hmm. You can learn all you want in a classroom about climate change, mass extinction, uh, toxicity in the landscape, whatever. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean anything changes within you. Right. Um, and same thing, you know, studying Buddhism, studying Judaism in a classroom does not actually necessarily bring you closer to the practice or the experience mm. of those uh, of those religions. So I think that we need to go beyond intellectuality when it comes to these matters, and we need to get into practice. Yeah, the doing. The doing is so, so crucial here. Mm. And starting anywhere, whether it's putting a seed into a cup of soil, wherever you might start, but it's that daily care and attention. Mm. You know, in, uh, in Buddhism, they often say, you know, when you're washing the dishes, wash the dishes. Like, just be fully present with whatever you're doing and do it fully. Mm -hmm. And that's what care and it really means. Mm -hmm. To care for something means you're actually fully paying attention. And it means that you're caring about it in a way that you're almost giving life to what we often consider lifeless. I mean, we're so human-centric, so mammal-centric, biocentric. Mm -hmm. um, we don't think something like a tool is worthy of care and attention right. in our society. Um, so I think that's kind of where where I'm really have personally been spending a lot of time is how do I actually care for everything that is in my orbit? Mm. Yeah, I think that idea of like, you know, a tool isn't worthy of that consideration. That's another really important cosmology or mythology we have in our studies that mm -hmm. we live in a materialistic world, not just since like people want like cars, but the idea that like, the primary substance of the universe is physical matter and it doesn't go beyond that. And if you don't think a tree is like a living being or you don't think whatever, you're just like, oh, it's just wood. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very objectifying. And, you know, say the tool you have, that tool has a story that goes back. I mean, you could hypothetically go back to the 
beginning of the universe of like where that matter emerged from. But it all had like a sequence that went to it. And that's true with everything we ever come across, every person, every plant, every being. And, you know, I think that care and that awareness also is rec- like recognizing that like you are a unique human animal, plant, whatever. And there's something in you that's this divine reflection, you could say, with going back to the God conversation. Mm-hmm. How do we bring that out? How can we like work together to do that? And I think, you know, there's a lot of a lot of our ideas is like our is conflict. It's like not collaborative. It's other people are basically conflicting for things instead of working together. And right. a lot of this work brings people together yeah. instead of like yeah. divides them. Yeah, and I also I mean if we think about it kind of if we take really nature as a model, mm. nature is multifaceted. But one thing you notice if you look at evolution really carefully is that competition and cooperation always go hand in hand mm. when it comes to evolution. They're both essential strategies of survival. Um, we have generally prioritized competition. Um, now I think we're starting to understand how much cooperation matters. And I think ultimately what we probably need is to some extent a balance of both or mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say if we need it but it's almost inevitable because it's, that is truly the way that evolution seems to move forward um, so I think we're, we're in the process we're in this era of doing a lot of rebalancing of mm-hmm. reconsidering some of that work is happening really quickly and some of it's happening very slowly mm-hmm. um, and I mean we're in a really unique place as a species um, I don't know but I, I think I, I can say that humans are the only species that probably really understands how much we can alter our own survival. And yet the question is, will we actually do anything with that information? Right. Knowing, let's say, that we're on a suicide mission, do we care? Do we do anything about it? Mm-hmm. Are we capable of enough forethought and planning and design to actually change? Hmm. Yeah, that... You mentioned Charles Eisenstein before and, you know, the stories of separation, the stories of ascent. And there's all these thinkers around, like, humanity as a whole, like going on the hero's journey. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they think of this as the potential, you know, this is our um, rite of passage that we've seen so many societies. Is An adolescent will, when they're approaching adulthood, they'll be left in the desert. They'll be left in the whatever to fend for themselves. And, you know, they can either survive the challenge and come out a man or a fully realized person or they die. Or they die. And I think a lot of thinkers are like, that's now. It's like, we're at the point, just like a teenager, you know, we're at the point where we have the ability, the physical ability to do all this stuff, but we don't have the like forethought and the insight and the long-term thinking. So, I don't know, the idea of humans going through this like literal trial by fire and like either coming out the other side being like, oh, we really got to like connect and we have this whole new ecological consciousness or people. I mean, it's probably going to be both many things. going. I think on, it but. will be both. Yeah. But no, I, I really I, I connect to that understanding of this moment as a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you were saying, I mean, rites of passage really across culture involve some kind of a feat of either strength mm-hmm. or, or a deep challenge, really something. Um, where you're, you're kind of out in the wilderness, perhaps, or you know, doing something extremely challenging. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know which way we're going to fall on that, but it, it, it could be both. Uh, it could be, um, but I, 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 I'm hopeful. And, and honestly, I mean, in some sense, 
you know, part of me, I go back and forth about this a lot. I mean, part of me is extremely cynical and does not think that humanity is capable of change. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, even when I feel that way, I still want to continue with the same work and the same hope that I bring to my own individual life <coughs> because that seems like the only thing to do. Mm. It really doesn't matter what happens beyond that to me in some sense because I'm, I, I can't change humanity. Right. Um, so that's, that's it. Even in the most cynical moments, I mean, you just put one foot in front of the other and do what you can. Yeah, I think that that's really important, and that goes back to why so many people feel powerless is because they see these massive system-wide things that take on the life of their own, and they're like, there's nothing I can do about this, mm -hmm. which to like a certain degree is like, I can't completely mitigate all of climate change, but I can do you know a little bit here, a little bit there. I have agency in my life, and it goes back to the like stoic idea of what you can control and what you can't control. Right. Yeah. I can't control the wildfires in California, can't control rising sea levels, but I can control, you know, using the permaculture garden as an example, that the mint grown here is, like, more ecologically sound. And yeah. that's a very, very tiny thing, but... But we're it, all tiny creatures. Yeah, we're all tiny creatures, <laughs> so, yeah. and there's a lot of us. So yeah. all of us did this, like, death by a thousand paper cuts kind of situation, right. and they're all built on top of each other. I think that's so important. And so, you know, yeah. we're taught that that's not useful because right. especially I think in the United States it's like we have to do this grand spectacle it has to be right. this nationwide thing and the president has to do it yeah. but you know I think a really great example of small local change that has big ramifications is around you know psychedelics and decriminalization and yeah. 20 years ago if most people were said like oh we're gonna decriminalize it in these towns it would be different but we see at least in Massachusetts a domino effect of decriminalization in Northampton, East Hampton, and that was just done by people going to their town hall right. and being like, hey, we want to do this. Right. Yeah, and there's obviously a huge ripple effect from those actions. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, someone, uh, a teacher I really respect once said that the, the next big solution is going to be a lot of small solutions, mm -hmm. um, meaning that, um, yeah, I mean, the, these the, the kind of looking to government or some other authority as the, the the way out of these problems is unfortunately i think really wrong-headed it also gets people into this kind of um black and white thinking where yeah. either it's all up to the individual or it's all up to some governmental body or right. world authority uh, but the reality is it is both because individual actions uh, impact Government actions, government actions will ultimately impact individual actions. Those are, I mean, we're one and the same, right? We, I mean, we are the government to some extent. Um, but the, the point there is that it, it doesn't make sense to me to try to divide those or say, oh, let's wait for some kind of a savior, yeah. a messiah to fix the problems for mm. us. So, yeah, getting back to psychedelics, that's, I mean, I mentioned uh, LGBT uh, as having had a massive sea change in my lifetime. Psychedelics, I would say, is in that same exact category. It's a, I think in 10 or 20 years, we're going to see it in the same lens um, because I'm, I'm really hopeful that we're moving forward in a way that in 10 or 20 years, our culture on psychedelics is going to be completely different from the, the era when I was born. Um, and that gives me great hope. And I think it's, I mean, psychedelics is really in so many ways. I, I don't want to play it up as a panacea. It's mm. not, it's a tool or they are many, many tools. They're medicines. No medicine is perfect. Medicine is also in the dose. All these things matter. The culture around it matters. 
So, which is all to say though, that there is to me so much hope in making these medicines more accessible. Mm. And in particular to those who currently don't have access to them. I mean, a lot of people already have access and that's great, good. Um, but what we really need is for people who are suffering from uh, everything from depression to end of life, uh, to really just feeling stuck in some kind of a pattern mm. for them to have, for people like that to have access. And these are often kind of, you know, um, more to use a, a 60s term square figures, mm. right? So who may not otherwise know about psychedelics, who may not want to do anything that's, you know, borderline legal or illegal. So that's kind of <laughs> where, where I'm hopeful we're going to start to see really big mm. social change when it starts to be accessible at that level. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm so incredibly excited uh, to be alive at this time, in part to see that transformation happen. Mm. Yeah, we, we really are living in this, the term used is like the psychedelic renaissance, right. or, you know, this huge outpouring of interest and studies and everything you can connect to it is, is happening, corresponding with, you know, a legal change and so much of like what kept people away from psychedelics is the fact that you could go to jail for a very long, long time. And now we're seeing, you know... And also just the fear around it, right? Because there's so much misinformation. The misinformation and the fear. But I'm curious, you you, yourself were a major part in getting psychedelics, plant medicine decriminalized in Northampton. I'm curious how, like, that process of, like, you as a citizen coming forward and, like, forming this coalition, like, how did that work? And has that changed your like view or understanding of yourself in the community yeah um so i i want to just i guess start by saying like i I feel like you know in this movement i'm riding on the shoulders of giants you know Mm -hmm. just really riding on the coattails of other success um but yeah my involvement um i I mean i've been you know personally involved in plant medicine um for for many many years um and i credit them for opening up so many pathways and uh, helping me individually in so, so many ways and also helping so many people I know. So I, I know of their value. It's no question in my mind that they are extremely valuable um, when couched within the right culture. And mm-hmm. I want to say that that's a really important caveat there. Um, but we are now, I think, entering a phase where there is enough maturity in our culture to understand that. Um, and so... I, I, I think it was during the uh, pandemic, probably, I think it was in the fall of uh, 2020, um, I was really feeling like a need to, to kind of give a gift back for the gifts I received mm. from you know, plant, working with plant medicine, even though I actually, I, I really haven't worked with them all that much in the last few years at all. Um, but, um, you know, I, 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 that, their legacy is still very much with me and I think it's shaped who I am. So... Um, I really, you know, just kind of started by looking at what's already happening, and um, thankfully, in Massachusetts, there's already a lot of work underway. Um, a lot of it really started after the last election cycle, so in November of 2020, uh, Oregon passed a couple really important ballot initiatives that were really transformational um, in um, the regulatory um, bodies around psychedelics. So it not only decriminalized all drugs, uh, but they also specifically created a psychedelic assisted or uh, psilocybin assisted therapy program. Um, 
for licensed therapists to work with clients. So seeing that, I was like, wow, okay, the time has come. I mean, it, uh, the zeitgeist is here. Mm. Um, and so uh, I wanted, in Massachusetts, there was a, a really scrappy volunteer group called Base Daters for Natural mm. Medicine, which was started around that time, as well as Decriminalized Massachusetts. And they're, I think they've more kind of somewhat merged into one group at this point. Um, so I contacted them and um, they were really early phases. They were, had just, you know, started work. This is around the time that Somerville, thanks to their efforts, passed uh, a resolution um, that decriminalized also all drugs, it's important to note, but with a particular emphasis on psychedelics. Um, and so I just started contacting um, city council figures in Northampton, where I live, um, and just kind of asking them, you know, if they would support something like this. Honestly, you know, I've worked in foreign policy before, mostly on the state level. I didn't, I'm very cynical when it comes to how quickly change happens mm-hmm. when it comes, you know, in any kind of government body. So I, I was not expecting much to happen for a while. You know, very, up until very recently, I should say, very, very few politicians of any stripe wanted to stick their heads out for any drug-related issues. It's, it's just not, it's not a winner. Um, so uh, I didn't expect much, but thought I'd give it a try. And amazingly, uh, to the great, um, uh, I give a lot of, of credit here to Northampton's um, city council. Um, I got responses for several of them being extremely enthusiastic. Um, and I think they already understood, mm-hmm. you know, the importance of this. I, you know, I talked them through it a little bit, but they, they got the general importance of it. Um, I think that the war on drugs has lost a lot of popularity, and that's across the political spectrum. It's one of the few things, actually, I think that Democrats and Republicans can actually agree on, but it's, no, we can get into that later. But anyway, so um, it, it happened very quickly. It, it, what, we ended up passing a resolution um, that, again, decriminalized all drugs in uh, Northampton, as well as really kind of creating a focus around the importance of psychedelics as medicine. Mm. Um, and uh, it was passed unanimously. Um, every single person on, at the meeting, or there's several meetings from the city council, everyone who spoke was supportive. Um, every, there were uh, people in their 80s who were supportive. There were people in their you know early 20s, late teens who spoke who were extremely supportive. Um, there were people who were, you know, Working class, professionals, whatever, everyone, you know, understood it. It doesn't matter if they actually had personal experience. They got that first of all, the war on drugs wasn't working, and second of all, that we need everything in our arsenal to work to to combat depression and anxiety and all these other epidemics mm. that we're facing as a culture. Um, so I, it was a really inspiring moment for me just to see our community to come together around something like that. Um, now I should say that that is has a limited agency because towns and cities in Massachusetts can't break state law. Currently, state law still classifies these substances as Schedule One mm-hmm. narcotics. So uh, we still have a lot of work to do. But I'm really confident that this is building up to the point where the states will take the charge, and that ultimately, as is the case with, for example, you know, gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal government will almost have no choice but to act. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to be really popular. I don't think there's going to be a lot of resistance. Um, 
So, it, you know, I, I think there's so many places like this where we, as a culture, actually can converge and can agree on something. Mm-hmm. We, we This kind of story of separation plays out in politics too, right? Where we think Democrats and Republicans, well, we have nothing in common. We can't right. possibly agree on anything. But I actually think this is one of the few places where we can actually make some movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, I don't know, when I think of the arguments like against psychedelics that were portrayed in like the 60s it made sense because it was this thing that just kind of like exploded onto the scene and people were like tripping everywhere but now we really the zeitgeist that you said is there we have this understanding of the importance of the context and the set and the setting and you know there's just more scientific literature out there that's like very almost unanimously saying like when used correctly in, in the right context ritualized almost you know it has these amazing amazing effects and if I was a Republican senator with, you know, a bunch of vets, say, I would look at, wow, the effects of MDMA are, like, groundbreaking in, like, the effects of doing that. And it's I, – I do think, you know, when marketed correctly, it really can be this, like, uniting – it's kind of ironic almost when you think about it. It's like this super divisive issue coming back 30 years later to be uniting. Yeah. And then you wonder what else, you know, is going to – follow suit like that and I think another big change that I've seen in my life is you know cannabis is when I was in high school like yeah. smoking weed was like oh my god like whatever but you know I, I, weed. It's, I started high college and it was illegal and I'm going to graduate when it's there's billboards on the side of the road right for which I mean <laughs> I'm not for the yeah. corporatization of yeah. it but just the culture shift around it I wouldn't say it's necessarily the healthiest it's better than going to jail but it is interesting to see how quickly, like, seemingly quickly, you know, there's groundwork there. These changes can happen on a federal level, on a state level, even just at, like a city level. Absolutely. That builds yeah. up very quickly when the momentum is there. Yeah. Yeah, as you're saying, a lot of it is also it's marketing. It's having the right spokespeople mm. for these things. And the language you use matters so much, which is part of marketing, right? right. Um, we're not calling them drugs anymore. We're referring to them as plant medicine. medicine. That in itself changes the conversation, you know. So I, I'm really, I think we all need to be more careful about the language we use mm. when talking about everything, but especially some uh, an issue that is really divisive because words trigger people. So when they hear a word like drug, it doesn't matter what you say afterwards. For some people, they're going to say drug bad. Yeah. End of story. Okay. So I think that we need to be really careful and really know who we're talking to, you know. So if you're talking to a conservative, maybe you're thinking more about kind of the libertarian angle mm. of people should be able to make their own decisions. Why should the yeah. government tell you what to put in your well, body? Look how expensive it, this government program yeah, is. Yeah, look at how expensive it is. Look at how much we're paying to jail, uh, paying to keep people in jail, loss of productivity, mm. whatever it might be. You know, we need to know who we're talking to and not just talk to ourselves in these conversations. Yeah. I think uh, on that point, like the echo chamber that forms, especially with social media, is, you know, we, all these arguments seem completely coherent and like down for us because of our experiences of whatever we have. And then you trying to talk to someone who's never had an experience, and this can apply to anything, you know, didn't have the learning you had, didn't have the same values or, you know, just different experience. And you're trying to like basically talk to them as if they've already had these things instead of meeting them meeting them where they're at. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really just important for any type of communication. Is for like, sure. This is 
some part of my experience, how am I gonna, you know, vibrate the air to get to your brain to like, yeah. get you to understand it? And yeah. we're realizing more and more how language, how clumsy yet how fine a tool language can be. Mm-hmm. And I think that will be a part of our consciousness consciousness shift as well. Right. It's like being very mindful of our speech. And I mean, that goes back to the Buddhist idea or any spiritual tradition will tell you that words have power. Yeah, and that's right. They're literally magical in, in that way, right? Right. They're literally magic. and But we're so, I think there's never been a society more inundated with words mm-hmm. than us. Absolutely. It's true. Absolutely. Because so, yeah. we're constantly talking and noise. the yeah. internet, we're hearing all these voices from all the internet and music yeah. and... Yeah. So I think that that makes me think that, I mean, really the most important speech in these kinds of situations, especially when we're talking about being agents of change, is stories, mm. personal stories. Um, for So when I was working with Bay Staters, you know, they said, whenever talking to politicians about this, always start with, why does this matter to mm. you? And that's usually in the form of a story, you know. Um, what happens when you encounter plant medicine? What happened to your cousin? You know, right. who, whose life do you know that it changed? Um, you can rattle off facts all day long. It doesn't. That that that's a form of rhetoric. It has power in some situations, right. but there's a lot of other forms of rhetoric that we underemploy. And I think stories gets us to empathize with each other, right? Mm. So you know, and I think this applies to really so much of political discourse, where we start with, well, this is bad because of this. Or this is yeah. good. We the, need this because of this. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and we, what we find is that, you know, if you actually start with a personal story, uh, people will actually tend to really listen to you mm. for one thing and empathize with you. And then you could actually get into, you know, more kind of rhetorical arguments. Right. Um, but always starting with, with story, I think, is really mm. is the way to go, you know, in these kinds of situations. Yeah. Well, Leading with a story, that's like leading with openness. Right. So it's like you're not starting with like already digging your trenches in. It's a matter of right or wrong. It's just like this is a story right. I have. Exactly. And you're right. You can contend the points later, but like human beings have evolved to listen to each other's right. stories and have that work very powerfully. Yeah. And you can't ar- out-argue a story. Right. right. A story is true by its very nature in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, – you know, I, I used to be very argumentative and, um, you know, I would often be like, well, I mean, this is so clearly logical. Why don't other people get this? Um, but it's just this, you know, you, you can outmaneuver logic from so many yeah. different perspectives. Um, so th- that's just, I, I don't find it to be co- very convincing anymore. Mm-hmm. So what I want to know, when, when someone tells me that they strongly believe something, first of all, I ask them, what is, what is your story behind this? What led you to feel this way and there's often kind of some kind of an origin story there that they can share and then, and then I can really start to understand them um, and we could start to really get into the, the, yeah. the specifics so often we have a, a story or a memory or an experience and we abstract it from there to say like this is all bad this is all good this needs to change but it all often stems from just this one experience you know which we had with conviction, but getting back to that original experience of whatever it might be, right. why do you hate immigrants so much? Why do you feel so strongly about the death penalty or abortion? What is your story there? And then let's let's go from there. Yeah, because to have like to have you know any strong feelings of anything like emotions are energy, and to have yeah. so much energy like involved in something, it kind of it has to be the result of like stacking almost and. Right. We have our cognitive biases that like one strong thing happens and that keeps stacking on and on and on. And 
you know, that's what a lot of trauma and depression comes from. It's just a negative thought pattern. We're all kind of, like, you know, collectively traumatized from a lot of the things in our society. You see that with COVID is people are, like, still, like, not able to talk to other people because they're scared. <laughs> the pattern has formed. Yeah. And now I guess, you know, the work we have to do is changing the physical patterns of work, the mental patterns of thought, and then, like, the felt patterns of, like, feeling and relating to each other. And Oh, when you put it that way, it sounds easy. <laughs> easier, easier said that, it's easy to speak the magic. It's harder to make that magic yeah, in reality. But, so. you know, as we've been saying kind of throughout this conversation, starting, starting with yourself, which right. is where you have the most agency, has always made sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... Um, you may you may have heard this story of I think it's usually attributed to some kind of a Buddhist source. Uh, there's a king who's like you know decided like one day, I only want to walk on gold for mm-hmm. the rest of my life. Like I, wherever I go, I want it to be paved with gold. And he sent one of his like people. He's like, can you make this happen for me? And the guy comes back with some golden shoes. Yeah. And he's like, and the, gold, the the king is like, what is this? Like I told you to pave every you know all the yeah. streets with gold. And he's like, well, put these shoes on. Wherever you walk, you're going to be stepping on gold, right. you know. And so to me, that story is just about like, okay, like if you change yourself, that changes the whole world right. for you, you know. Yeah, that, that was the quote I had written on my sophomore dorm is if you change yourself, you change the world. Right. And I really – it's it's, it's it's hard to embrace, right, but it's It's cliche, true. but it's so true. It's and very it's so true. true. We've, and we've all experienced that, you know, even just waking up. And you felt really depressed the day before. Mm. The next day, you go, "Why did I feel that way? I feel mm. great right now. How did you know? How did that happen? Yeah. My relationship with everything and everyone is different all of a sudden. Yeah, or even just when you're hungry. You know, yeah, you're or even see the just when very you're different when the world's hungry. You just stub right? your toe, and that goes back, you know, to the Buddhist ideas of like, who's the one actually experiencing all these things? And it's mm. like, well, there's no one even there. That's that's for another podcast. <laughs> um, but we're, we're hitting our one-hour mark. I want to be respectful of your time and place. Um, just on the ending note of change, is there any, you know, was there any one thing or one small change that you think our listeners at home could do in their day, maybe around planting or agriculture, anything you'd think that, you know, mm. this little iterative change, maybe yeah. some people, if they planted that seed, it could ripple out. Yeah. Um, so a big one for me, uh, has been pausing before eating. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that can look a lot of different ways. If you want to say grace, you can say grace. If you want to just sit for a minute before you immediately, you know, react to that feeling of hunger. Um, I think it's really, really healthy because creating that little gap between desire and fulfillment gives you a space to actually be with that desire, notice it, see whether it's what, what, what it is. And also, I think a sense of gratitude just comes up. Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm feeling it. Kind of actually feels kind of nice, you know, because you already have your food there. Yeah. Um, so just knowing that, you know, it's it, it, imminently your desires yeah. will be fulfilled. Um, but to me, uh, that gap really leaves space for gratitude. And gratitude is in such short supply in our culture. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that 10 seconds, a minute, whatever you could spare before you eat something and maybe ritualizing it by maybe you want to say something in your mind or out loud. Maybe you want to put your hands together. Maybe you want to do something else that feels right to you. 
um, I think that that act starts to really create a lot of other spaces in your life for, for gratitude. Mm. Wow. That was a fantastic answer. All right. Well, Dan, I'm, my gratitude for having you here is immense. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm very grateful to anyone listening to this. And yeah, I'll see you on the next episode. Dan, is there anything else you'd like to close with? Or uh, Well, yeah, I just want to say thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and uh, I also, just, I'll give a shout out to if anyone's listening and if you're near Amherst, uh, please come and visit uh, you can find us at localumass.com, and you can learn more about the uh, permaculture initiative at UMass. And uh, volunteer hours for the summer. We're dating this. It's summer 2021. Uh, are Tuesdays, Thursdays, 8 to 12. So if you're hearing this and you're in Amherst and you want to come by, swing by. And I'll put the website in the link for all of you. Thank you so much, and uh, have a wonderful day. Peace.